Welcome to Screen Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist who was telling me I had bipolar. I was sent home with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using loud music as a form of therapy. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests. This is Screen Therapy. When Jeff Rickley's band, Thursday, broke up after 15 years, six albums, and I don't know how many thousands of shows, he lost his way, understandably. With a huge part of his life over, he started to flounder. He questioned his self-worth and felt like he'd failed himself and the others around him. His suicidal thoughts became overwhelming. Depression and wanting to end his life led to an addiction to heroin. Many, including Jeff, consider addiction a mental health condition. Jeff grew up in the New Jersey punk scene. He put on house shows with his friends and started Thursday with some of the same friends. The band got huge in the mid to late 2000s, beyond any of their expectations. The demands of touring, the pressures of being an it band, and personal problems became too much for the guys on Thursday. After getting clean a few years ago, Jeff was able to see with clarity how much creating songs meant to him and the positive high he gets from music. With Thursday back together, on a relaxed play-when-they-play schedule, the pressure's off Jeff. He's come full circle. Basement shows are big festivals. He's doing what he wants to do. And he's keeping himself healthy. What's more punk rock than that? Full name is Jeffrey William Rickley. Most people know me as a singer of a band called Thursday. I got into punk rock pretty young. I think the first punk band I saw, The Replacements, opened for Tom Petty when I was maybe eight years old. Um, my parents were really into concerts and stuff, loved Tom Petty. I, When I was young, I really gravitated towards The Cure and The Smiths, Nine Inch Nails, Ministry. I really liked industrial music when I was a kid. I was really into wax tracks like before I turned 14. Chicago Industrial. I don't know why that was the underground music that touched me first, but there were a lot of others. I had a friend's older sister who got me into Pixies and Fugazi and Nirvana and stuff like that. And so through high school, my relationship with punk rock was mostly like tapes. There was a garage in Westwood where I saw a few bands. It used to be $1.25 to get to New York City on the bus. So my friends and I would go after school. And that was the first time I got to go to Coney Island High Daryl Jennifer from Bad Brains snuck me into CBGB's once because uh, I wasn't old enough. You had to be 16 back then to get into CBGB's. I was 15, so he let me carry his bass amp because one of my friends vouched for me. So uh, that was like sort of my experience of punk rock. I moved to New Brunswick to go to school. 
and that's when I found out about basement culture and zines and all their really good DIY stuff. That's when I first started going to basement shows. There were so many cool bands playing basements. I got into making flyers with my friends. You know, we would all go to Kinko's and there were hacks for the cards so you could get out like more flyers than you were supposed to be able to get. My sophomore year, three of my friends and I decided to move off campus and get a house so we could do our own basement shows because the Bouncing Souls and Lifetime were both going on tour and we thought somebody needed to keep this tradition alive. I started booking shows and we, at the height of it, I'd say we had three shows a week, which is probably too many considering we lived in a rural neighborhood. I'd say 300, 400 shows in total before we got shut down by the cops. And that's why we started Thursday was so that we could play those basement shows. That was really the only reason we started the band in the first place. Tom and I saw an Ink and Dagger show that we thought was life-changing. that let's play in a band that physically moves you when you see them that was kind of the idea <laughs> at least I've always thought about mental health stuff a lot uh, since I was very young since I was in high school still I had a bunch of friends all pass away while I was still very young and also there was a very famous group suicide that happened in the town over from mine when I was about nine or ten years old and so I knew a lot of kids whose older brothers and sisters were affected by it and who I knew some of the younger siblings of the kids that died too. At a certain point it became a thing that I felt was always lurking around every corner. Death was everywhere just waiting to jump out. I was very scared and very depressed a lot and I remember my parents sending me to a therapist when I was pretty young he told me that I was boring and that I didn't have any real problems. I remember that very well. He felt he used to fall asleep in our sessions. I can kind of see the humor in it, but it's also like insanely unprofessional. He'd be like, are you having sex? You know, I was like 16. I'd be like, yeah. And he's like, then what's the problem? <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, okay, uh, all right. I don't know what to say. I don't know. Like I feel terrible all the time. Is that not a problem? <laughs> Did you know at that time that you were dealing with something that you felt had rooted in you at a younger age? It's a good question because I was a very lonely kid. I was an only child and I was from an era of you can sort of raise yourself like your parents work all the time and you're just, you got a key and my town was a square mile. So it was like easy for me to walk home and microwave dinners and watch TV. But I was really lonely and I didn't take to socialization super well. And I guess I sort of always wondered if it was me or if it was just the circumstances that I was in. I thought maybe, you know, like the therapist would say like, yeah, it's natural to be sad when sad things happen and a lot of sad things keep happening around you. So you're probably okay. And I don't know, fair enough, but also maybe that stuff happening in a formative time changed who I was. You know, I don't think I knew for years that I was an addict I hear something in like 12-step programs a lot. You know, I was an addict since I was a little kid, even before I touched drugs and stuff. It's like, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know if that's a 
doesn't seem to me to be a clinically proven thing yet. That seems to be a thing that people feel instinctively in themselves. I don't know if I ever felt anything like that. Later on, it would become more obvious to me that, you know, I had a few things that I need to be concerned about aside from anxiety and body dysmorphia, depression, suicidal thoughts, stuff like that. And I don't know how well connected they all are. You know what I mean? Some of them pretty clearly connected to me and some of them are probably quite separate. You know, at least some of them take different treatments that are separate treatments. I can't just say, well, you know, as long as I'm sober, everything will be okay. That has not been my experience. There's a lot of work around emotional schemas and how you carry those from your youth into your adulthood and they drive a lot of your thoughts and actions. So was the loneliness just being by yourself in front of the TV or was there something else, especially as you grew into a teen and young adulthood? I spent a lot of my time in my head, you know, imagining scenarios that would happen or could happen or having dark fantasies about people who didn't want to hang out with me. And I'd get into a fist fight at school and the kid would knock me on my butt and I'd spend the rest of the weekend imagining scenarios in which I was going to beat him and pound him into a pulp. And all the time I was in my head, I was in my head a lot more than I was anywhere else. And I would have babysitters when I was really young. They'd be like, he's the easiest kid I've ever babysitter. You can park him in front of a blank wall and he'll just stare at it for four hours. I'm somewhere else and everything that I want to happen is happening. And I think that probably I was very lucky to find music at the age that I did and to then find a situation where I was sort of forced into socializing and being in a band all the time, living with people all the time. You know, Thursday at our height, we were playing like 300 shows a year. So I didn't really know what it was like to be alone at that point. I was really lucky that I was able to translate that life of being stuck in my mind into having a band and being able to turn those thoughts into art and music and able to actually find an outlet for those wandering thoughts because they could go quite dark and violent. And I actually got into a fight with a friend pretty young. I wouldn't necessarily say that I prayed for him to be dead, but I definitely thought I wished he was dead for the next week or so. And he ended up getting shot by another one of our friends. Something that I thought about a lot after that was, oh man, that's like what I was praying to happen was that he would die. And then he died. And like, now I'm like, wow, you know, we were kids. We just got into a little bit of a fist fight during a football game. It's so dumb. You know what I mean? We weren't even in high school yet. I have thoughts like that sometimes too, where I thought I'll pop into my head about a family member dying. And then I'm just so scared for the next few days. Oh my God, this is going to happen. I have a lot of anxiety around my bipolar. So the anxiety mm -hmm. comes up and then all of a sudden I can't control uh, mm -hmm. these thoughts. Yeah, that anxiety without ever having any confirmation or diagnosis is bipolar. I can definitely have thoughts. You know that feeling when you step off a curb and then you step back and a bus comes by and you're like, wait, I really almost just died there. I can't let go of that. You know what I mean? I just keep going with it and going with it and I just play it out. And then I start thinking like, maybe I am dead. Maybe this is a different world. Maybe there's a world in which I just died. And then I start thinking about what my friends and family are thinking in that world. And I'm like, how could I be so stupid? Always lost in my own thoughts. And I like ended up getting myself killed and all my friends and my family are just like, what happened to them, you know? So like a thought spiral, right? Yeah, it just goes and goes and goes, yeah. How did the switch flip when you started with Thursday? It was partly my age and I was going through a lot of changes as it was a year before the band started when I moved down and started doing basement shows, even before the basement shows. When I got to New Brunswick, 
I changed my diet and I started lifting weights every day in the gym. It was like, almost like I was in prison. Like I cut all my hair off, stopped looking people in the eye for like a year. And I just had this really super antisocial year. And then when I met the Thursday guys, it was like this other switch flipped and I changed again. And suddenly I was friendlier than I had ever been. So it was, it was a strange thing where there were just so many changes happening in my personality all the time. I started to wonder if I had an actual self or if I was like a chameleon that could just go anywhere and do anything, adapt to any situation. And I would think that, you know, cause some, sometimes people would criticize me that way. Teachers and people in class would say like, well, what are you actually like? You know, who are you? What do you stand for? And I would think I have no idea no idea who I am. You know, I, I, I don't know. Here are some ideas that I think are interesting that you talked about. I liked this book. Maybe that's a thing that happens for most people when they're young is that they're looking for that identity, but it's certainly not how it felt to me. I felt like just in crisis all the time. There was nothing inside. There was no person in there. What did crisis look like? Sometimes it was stealing pharmaceuticals from people's medicine cabinets. Sometimes it was trying to overdose and waking up two days later. Sometimes it was self-harm, sometimes just trying to drown out the rest of the world and make them leave me alone. Other times it was staying up all night and crying with my friends, just being like, oh no, you know, and then being like, yeah, who the fuck knows who we are, you know, or whatever. And, and that, that was some of the best times of my life were the nights where we drove all night and just all shared how crazy it was that we were doing what we were doing because none of us knew what to do with ourselves. Some nights we would just stay up all night telling ghost stories and things like that. You know, it was like I finally was getting that socialization that I never had as a kid. I feel very lucky now. I don't necessarily feel like I'm figured out all my mental health issues, but now I feel quite lucky that I've been given the chance to work on them. <laughs> you know, The headspace that you're in when Thursday broke up is a much different place than you're in now. Can you tell me what it was like at that point? So when Thursday was breaking up because of a couple medical crises in the band beyond any of our controls, I was also going through a divorce at the same time with somebody that I really loved. Like we really loved each other. Just couldn't make our personalities match up long enough to work our things out. And I was just really felt lost. And I felt like I had spent the best years of my life just sort of crashing and burning. When I started going from drinking and pills and stuff like that to just using heroin daily, that was like a pretty a steep shift in severity of drug. There was like an implicit choice that I made that was sort of like, well, I don't really have anything that I want to do with my life anymore. I've done the things that I want to do and I failed them actually. And like, I wasn't, I wasn't good at them. And you know what, maybe I was an imposter this whole time because look at how it's all turning out. I probably have a few years before this kills me and I guess I'll just try and enjoy it. I don't know. You know, it was sort of my attitude, which is a pretty terrible attitude to have. And now as of today, I'm three and a half years sober. So that's a huge change. Well, congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. I sponsor other guys. I try to get other guys sober. I try to do a lot of service using the platform that Thursday has to be beneficial for the world. But I also try to do a bunch of things that have nothing to do with Thursday that are just positive things to do for the world. I've been given a lot of chances. You know, I've screwed it up a lot and I'm still alive and I'm still like blessed 
in a way that I get to make music and have people even care about the things that I say, which is really hard sometimes to feel like I deserve those things, you know, like I deserve to have people to care. Just do something for another person and just try to be helpful, especially when it's the thing that you're not going to get credit for, when it's just going to be something that you do anonymously. There's a really good way to get yourself out of your head. This is just a chance for you to do something for somebody else. So don't overthink it. What was the connection for you between the addiction and the mental health? Did you see it as being part and parcel or? The downhill path led me to a place where I was suicidal and the heroin was like a stop along the way of that. Am I going to kill myself today or am I going to kill myself in the next five years while I'm using heroin? Well, I'm a coward, so I'm going to kill myself in five years. You know, I'm not going to do it now because I'm too scared to do it now. Was that a conscious thought process? Yeah. So I actually, I got mugged at gunpoint and I had a bunch of pills and I had like my rent and cash, everything that I had left in the world on me. I don't know why I would carry that kind of stuff on me, but I had it all on me. They got stolen and I was sitting alone in this little room that I was renting from one of my friends and I didn't have rent and I had enough money left in the bank to buy like a few more drugs. I was also in withdrawal from not having any pills. And I was just thinking like, all right, what am I going to do? So I bought, I bought heroin and I didn't know what to do with it. So I just sat there looking at it for like five days. And that was the, the thought process that I kept having was like, do I kill myself now? Do I take this? Is it worse to take this than it is to kill myself? Like, I don't even know. You know, it's just something that kind of went over and over again in my mind. I was also having a really hard time sleeping. And I think when you can't sleep, things change their tone. You know, your whole thought process changes. For whatever reason, it seemed to be medicine before it was poison. There was a time period where taking hard drugs they would treat certain things. My anxiety about my life situation, all the things that worried me, they'd stop worrying me. Opiates would make me feel like I belonged okay about being where I was. So for a certain time, it was very much self-medicating. It's something that I talk about a lot with certain support groups. There is a time when it seems like it's working and then it stops. When it stops, you're not back to square one. You're like way beyond square one. You're like in a place that's like, man, I wish I could get back to square one. You know, square one looks like a dream from where I'm standing. By the time I realized I crossed the line, it wasn't like I crossed the line yesterday and I realized it today. It was like, oh, wait, I actually crossed the line way before I can see it. In the 12-step community, they talk about addiction being a mental health condition? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. There are some contentious topics in 12-step about outside mental health help and whether or not you should be medicated for dual diagnosis conditions. When I sponsor, people say like, this is just for addiction. If it ends up helping you with other problems, that's great. If you need to talk to somebody professionally, go talk to them, you know, and listen to their suggestions too. It's not, this is not the only thing that you need to worry about if you're a doctor, if you tell them, hey, I'm an addict and I have to be careful about medication. And they say, that's great, but you are also type two bipolar and this is going to really change your life if you have medication and you need to take it. And here are the things that we can put in place to make sure you're not abusing these medications. Those are the kinds of conversations you need to have. Whereas I think there are some people who would say, you stop drinking, you stop doing drugs, all that's going to go away. 
okay, just not how it works. Do you remember the point where you had that flip from being addicted to realizing that it's time to look at getting clean? So I was working a day job. It put me well below the poverty line. I had to take speedballs just to get up in the morning to go to the job. This is a tough way to live because I couldn't afford to do that, <laughs> but it was the only way I could go to work. So I had been between a rock and a hard place for quite a while. And I remember after getting kicked out of my place and disappointing people all over again and hurting all my loved ones who had seen me try to get clean so many times, supported me and tried to be patient. And I was just back to thinking about that suicidal thought of where can I go to end this? Do I have enough on my credit card to go here and just drink myself to death? How can I figure this out? It just had this thought of what if I actually could just stop? What if I don't have to do this anymore? Like, what if I could really, like, what if I really could, like, just stop this like, cycle of pain and disappointment and just the thought itself felt like turning your face towards the sun and closing your eyes and feeling it just, like, warm your skin. I had that same feeling of warmth, and I felt so... I just started crying because I was like, oh my God, that'd be amazing if I could do that. And just that thought for a second, and maybe I can, it was enough for me to seek out some treatment. Where was the punk community through all this? Were you still involved at this point or had you distanced yourself from music? I had still been doing some stuff. You know, my band members had really been through it with me. One of our mutual friends in the United Nations guys had been through it with me and they had been really hard on them a few times on tour, just withdrawing in the van, just trying to get through it, you know, and just walk onto the stage, scream for like 40 minutes and then back to the van just to be a piece of shit, sick and sad and in a bad place. It was, it was tough. Like, I think they were all, everybody was at their ropes end with me. It was kind of like, I love the guy, but there's nothing I can do for him anymore. It's kind of where most of the people in my life had gotten, including all my band members. So by the time I went and got treatment, it was really, it was uh, Don from Ink and Dagger, actually. Who put me in touch with the guy that ran the treatment center I went to and uh, encouraged me to go down there and, and try this sort of experimental therapy that I had done. Really supportive. I probably owe that guy my life. So, <laughs> so it's funny how the band that like, first made me want to be in a band and then later after being friends with them and doing singing for the Ink and Dagger reunions all those years later you would end up saving my life it's one of those weird things what role did being on stage have in your illness and your life at that point it was just something I had to do you know which is a pretty bleak thing to think about I dragged myself on the stage and be like oh god here comes this again I can't believe I have to do this right now. How am I going to do this? And as soon as they'd start, it would just snap right by. People would be like, that was great. And I'd think like, was it? And I'd see videos and say, oh yeah, I did everything I was supposed to do. How did that happen? And it's amazing. Music can really flip that channel, you know, just make things work. And I do also sometimes wonder about, you know, the incidents of addiction and touring musicians and stuff. Playing music is such a high. It really is. I think that most people think of it as somewhat of an exaggeration, you know, to say that it's a high or whatever. But I actually really think that like whatever 
pleasure channels and adrenalinols and serotonin, dopamine, all the good chemicals that come from taking hard drugs. I think they're probably all activated from live music too. And um, certainly that adoration, you know, of putting the oxytocin and all the other kind of love drugs into your system. Yeah, I definitely think that there's some kind of rush because I remember the first year after Thursday broke up, nine o'clock would roll around. This is part of the not sleeping, I think too. Nine o'clock would roll around and I'd start getting nervous, you know, and I'd start getting like hyped up. And at 11, I'd be like flowing with adrenaline and nothing to do with it. And I think it was just like my body for over 10 years had just regulated itself to get a surge of adrenaline that I needed to burn off on stage. And without any kind of performance or any kind of uh, release, it was just sitting in me all night long. And I think that's part of why I had insomnia so badly all those years. Not having that, uh, well, the podcast is called Scream Therapy. (laughs) You lose your therapy and what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I have no doubt that Uh, all that time with United Nations on stage when I was withdrawing, I'm sure that was very therapeutic. It was just, it was so bleak for me at that point that it was like, you know, am I alive? What am I doing in the van here? I can't believe these guys are actually taking me on tour right now. You know, it felt like I was like, just put me in a road case and wheel me out when you need me, you know, I'll just stay in there the rest of the time. We talked about loneliness earlier and I was mentioning emotional schemas and how we bring those through our lives. When you think about loneliness now, what does that mean to you? That's a good question. I've, it sounds strange to say, but people talk about their relationship with themselves. I used to think of that as kind of like, can you embrace loneliness? And I've stopped thinking about it that way because part of the treatment that I did, the experimental treatment, it had this really deep into the psyche dive. It really let me see that the self is a lot more complicated than it just It's just you. It's a relationship that you have with your body and with your past and your future and the web of experiences that you've had. And there's a lot to it. And when I was first sober, I started to talk to myself in the mirror every day and they call it mirror work. I would say like, I love you and I forgive you for all the stuff that you've done. And I know we're both just trying, just trying to do the best that we can do. We're in it together, which sounds like a crazy thing to say to your reflection, right? We're in it together. There was a a diagram made for me once when I was in a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy, which was a canoe. And I was rowing the canoe and they made a shadow. It was my subconscious and the other side of the canoe rowing against me. One of the things I really realized is like, yeah, there is some subconscious part of me, a child or whatever you want to envision it as that did not agree with where I had taken my life and it was fighting against me all the time. And now I just try and make peace with that shadow side and say, Hey, we're not going to always see eye to eye, but we're in it together and let's try and do this with some love. And it's really been a lot better for me.
Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Screen Therapy. I'm coming to you from Powell River, a small coastal town in British Columbia, Canada, on the traditional territory of the Klohomin Nation. Doing this podcast and talking to other folks living with mental health challenges has been a huge part of my journey. It means the world to me that you're out there listening. You can sign up for my newsletter and find more episodes at ScreamTherapyHQ.com. That's ScreamTherapyHQ.com. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Let's talk punk and mental health. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, take care and be well. If you